coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field. It's the Derek Izzy Show. Welcome to the Derek Izzy Show. I am the aforementioned Mr. Izzy. A big thank you to Moses Ronald for that show introduction. And this is the very first podcast. This will be a monthly series, taking a deep dive into history, politics, current events, the world of racquetball, everyday life, and basically anything that you call in and suggest. We have a podcast hotline where callers can call in, leave a voicemail, suggest topics, or voice their opinions on something that we covered. That number is 307-257-2099. Give us a call, voice your opinions, and if we find that it's something noteworthy, we will play it on the air. A big thank you to a couple of our sponsors for this show. First of all, we've got Izzy Racquetball. Lifelong sponsor of the show. Uh, If you're not a racquetball player, but you do play other sports, let me give you some products that would be available for you on IzzyRacquetball.com. If you're a golfer, the racquetball gloves make excellent golf gloves. Go to IzzyRacquetball.com, take a look at the gloves. They range between $10 and $18 a pair. Excellent for golf. If you play other sports... The shoes that Ectalon makes are amazing cross-training shoes. I recommend the T22s. That's what I use for racquetball. I also use them when I'm just walking around casually because they have a, a unique style to them that sets them apart from other shoes that you would find. They range from $65 to $95 a pair, so you're in under the $100 mark. Excellent, excellent product for any kind of sport. Our next sponsor is NatureBox. Now, you've probably never heard of NatureBox before. They are the maker of healthy snacks, trying to get people to make better choices on their food intake and just to lead a healthier lifestyle. Here's how their program works. You can't find them in stores, but if you click on the link on my website, DerekIzzy.com, There's a link there that will take you directly to the order form at NatureBox. Now, you have to use the link that's on my website because that's how they tell how many of their customers were driven there from my show. And we need to keep them as a sponsor. So need you to click on that link, go there and place your order. 20 bucks a month is what it costs for the basic package. And that's uh, the package that I originally signed up for when I first registered on naturebox.com and for that 20 bucks a month you get five snacks they ship them directly to you so there's no shopping no deciding no nothing they ship you a variety of snacks for example i'll use what i got this month this month i have a bag of homestyle cheddar mix a bag of seaweed rice pops a bag of ranch sunflower kernels a bag of dried fuji apples and a bag of mango almond bites. Now, 
These are foods that anyone who knows me knows that I typically don't go for the the healthy type snacks like this. And I'll use the mango almond bites as an example because they're basically rice cakes, which anyone who eats rice cakes knows that they're flavorless. They taste like crap. But the mango almond bites that they give you, they've got almonds in them, adds a little bit of flavor, but then the mango pieces, just the sweetness, and it just adds flavor to it. And I actually like them. They're very good. Nature Box, sponsor of the show. Use the link on my webpage to get 50% off your first order. 20 bucks a month. Cannot beat them for healthy snacking. Now, on to this month's show. This is a show about a little-known event in our history. What do the following names have in common? We have a Mr. Jones, Ben Brown, W.F. McCrotty, Henry McKenzie, Johnny Boyle, George Lonkar and his daughter Marianne, Dr. William York, John Greary, Jack Bogart, and roughly 10 others that have not been identified yet. What do those names have in common? Picture it. Kansas, 1870. Following the American Civil War, the United States government moved the Osage Indians from Labette County, Kansas, to a new Indian territory, located in what would eventually be Oklahoma. That left this land vacant and available to homesteaders. In October of 1870, five families settled in around Osage Township of western Labette County. One of these families is the topic of today's podcast. This family included John Bender Sr., John Bender Jr., Ma Bender, and the daughter Kate Bender. They registered a plot of land adjacent to the Great Osage Trail, which at the time was the only open road for travelers that were trying to go west. They built a cabin, a barn with a corral, and a well. In the fall of 1871, the cabin was divided into two rooms by a canvas wagon cover. The benders used the smaller room at the rear for their living quarters, while the front room was converted into a small general store. And they sold dry goods, and uh, they had a kitchen and a dining table, and travelers would stop by for a meal or spend the night before they were off on the rest of their journey. They also created a vegetable garden and an apple tree orchard. Now, John Bender Sr. was about 60 years old, spoke very little English. When he did speak it, it was usually unintelligible. No one had any idea what he was talking about. Ma Bender also spoke very little English. She was believed to be about 55 years of age and just rude. Her neighbors nicknamed her She-Devil, kind of like my Aunt Edna. John Bender Jr. was believed to be about 25, handsome, and he spoke fluent English, but with a German accent. The Benders were believed to be a family of German immigrants. John was also prone to laughing aimlessly, so many considered him to be basically an idiot. Kate Bender, maybe 23, was believed to be the cultivated and attractive woman, spoke English very, very well, and was a self-proclaimed healer and psychic. She gave out flyers advertising her supernatural powers and her ability to cure illnesses. 
She also conducted seances and gave lectures on spiritualism, for which she gained a lot of notoriety for. Kate's popularity became a large attraction for the Benders Inn. Although the elder Benders kept to themselves, Kate and her brother regularly attended Sunday school in nearby Harmony Grove. The historical facts on Kate and her brother John are not exactly clear if they're brother and sister. Some accounts also listed them as husband and wife, which is pretty interesting. Part of this story focuses on Kate Bender. In an article in the June 7, 1873 issue of Harper's Weekly, a national publication, she claimed to have power over evil spirits and to cure diseases of every kind. And she's kind of said to have been the ruling spirit of the family. It was easy for lone travelers to vanish in empty expanses of the Kansas prairie. This is what made the location of the Benders Inn so appealing. Towns were very few and far between. Communication between isolated populations was difficult and sporadic. Now this is back in the days where there were no driver's license, no social security cards, so you really didn't have much information in order to identify yourself. Beginning in the spring of 1871, Labette County, particularly the stretch of the Osage Trail near the Bender Inn, started experiencing a large share of disappearances. In May of 1871, the body of a man, Mr. Jones, was discovered in Drum Creek. His head had been bashed in and his throat had been cut. Suspicion fell on the owner of the claim where Jones's body was found, but the level of proof never rose above suspicion. Travelers would stop at the Bender Inn for refreshment, perhaps a night's sleep. The family lived in the rear of the home, behind the canvas partition, and served their guests in the front. In addition to offering a welcome respite, Kate began performing bizarre seances in which she muttered gibberish and waved weapons. One woman, dissatisfied with Kate's healing powers, demanded the return of the side saddle she had given Kate as payment. She claimed the benders then threatened her and chased her across the prairie. But seeing how Kate appeared a God-fearing young woman, active in Sunday school, such stories were not given much credence. But then in February of 1872, Kansas was hit with a horrible blizzard. After the thaw, the bodies of two men were discovered. But their deaths had nothing to do with the blizzard. Just like Mr. Jones, their heads had been bashed in and their throats cut. A year later, when suspicion swirled around the benders, a neighbor claimed to have seen Pa Bender, John Sr., driving the men's wagon during the snowstorm. In the fall of 1872, Johnny Boyle set out from the Osage Mission with $1,900 in his possession. Now, Back in the 1870s, $1,900, that was like carrying around $36,000 today. His plan was to purchase some land. However, he never returned, and there's no records of him buying any land. In 1873, citizens of Labette County became concerned over the inordinate number of missing persons in their community. Neighboring counties were experiencing losses as well. In March 1973, Dr. William York from Onion Creek in Montgomery County 
came in search of Mr. Lonkor and his daughter who had gone missing. They had traveled through that area the previous winter, but were never heard from again. Dr. York never made it home either. Now, Dr. York was from a very prominent family, and in April of that year, his brother, Colonel A.M. York, came to Labette County leading a party of about 50 citizens from Montgomery County. They searched unsuccessfully for the missing doctor. They made several stops at the Bender's cabin. On one occasion, they asked Kate to use her clairvoyant powers to help with the search, but of course she had no information for them. The next time someone stopped at the Bender's cabin, it appeared to be deserted. Their wagon was missing, and a calf they were raising had died of neglect. The authorities in Cherryvale were notified and went back to check on the house. Everything seemed to be in order. Nothing was missing but clothes and bedding. But a thorough search of the house began to reveal the Bender's horrible secret. Near the table where guests were served was a trap door, and a foul-smelling hole beneath the door was clotted with blood. The ground in the orchard near the house had been carefully plowed, but one small section was noticeably indented. The ground was dug up, revealing the decomposed body of Dr. York. His skull had been crushed and his throat had been cut. Before nightfall, seven more bodies were extracted, and another was found the next day. Most were badly decomposed, but were identified by clothing and jewelry. The travelers were murdered for their money. The amount stolen by the benders ranged from 40 cents to $2,600, along with horses and wagons. From the conditions of the bodies and the arrangements of the house, the authorities were able to surmise how the killings were done. The table where the customers would eat had a small booth formed by cloth partitions on both sides. The partitions were close enough to the back of the chairs that when sitting upright, the heads of the diners would indent the cloth. The male benders would wait behind the cloth partitions, and then when the opportunity presented itself, they would smash their victims' skulls with stone-breaking hammers. The bodies were then thrown through the trap door, where the throats were cut to guarantee their death. After dark, the bodies were removed and buried in the orchard. This speculation was verified to an extent by a Mr. Wetzel of Independence, Kansas, who had read Kate's advertisements and traveled to the Benders with his friend, Mr. Gordon, seeking a cure for neuralgia. Kate examined Wetzel and expressed confidence in her ability to effect a permanent cure, but invited them to dine first. For some reason, the two men arose from the table and decided to eat their dinners at the counter instead. This caused a complete change in Kate's behavior. She just became angry, abusive, and very, very upset with the two men for making this simple decision. They saw the two Bender men emerge from behind the partitions. Wetzel and Gordon became suspicious and then decided to leave. This was a decision that no doubt saved their lives. When the news of the murders spread through Labette County, it whipped citizens into a frenzy. They demanded vengeance and formed a vigilance committee to hunt down the benders. The vigilantes were the first to the home of a man named Brockman, another German immigrant who had recently been a partner of Mr. Bender's. They put a rope around his neck and threatened to hang him if he would not confess. 
When Brockman swore he knew nothing, they hanged him from a tree. But when he was at the point of death, they lowered him down and questioned him again. When he still had nothing to tell them, they hung him again. This torture was repeated three times before the posse left him semi-conscious, laying on the ground. Other residents of Labette County told a slightly different story. A ticket clerk at the train station where the Bender's abandoned wagon had been found told of selling tickets to Humboldt to four people matching the Bender's descriptions. From Humboldt, they could have gone south through Indian Territory and on to Texas, or they could have gone north to Kansas City and from there points east. The Bender's true identities were finally unmasked at this point. John Bender Sr. was believed to be John Flickinger. John Bender Jr. was named John Gebhardt. Ma Bender was believed to be Almira Griffith. And Kate Bender was believed to be Eliza Griffith, the fifth of Ma's 12 children. She claimed that John Gebhardt and Eliza Griffith were lovers, even as they posed as siblings. And that Eliza also known as Kate, disposed of any inconvenient children that may have come from their union. Some also claim that Ma killed at least a couple of her dozen husbands, along with a couple of children who threatened to expose her. Now, the reliability of these rumors is questionable, but I bring it up because I want you to know everything that I've learned while researching this. I was also able to find a couple letters that might give us clues as to what actually happened to the Benders in their final moments. Thomas Duke contacted police chiefs of Cherryvale and Independence, Kansas. This is how they responded on the topic of the Benders. Now, this letter is from June 14, 1910, from J.N. Kramer, who was the chief of police in Cherryvale, Kansas at the time. He says, Dear Sir, yours just received. It so happened that my father-in-law's farm joins the Bender farm, and he helped locate the bodies of the victims. I often tried to find out from him what became of the Benders, but he only gave me a knowing look and said he guessed they would not bother anyone else. There was a vigilance committee organized to locate the Benders, and shortly afterward, Old Man Bender's wagon was found by the roadside, riddled with bullets. You will have to guess the rest. I am respectfully yours, J.N. Kramer. In another letter sent by D.M. Van Cleve, chief of police in Independence, Kansas, he says, Dear sir, in regard to the Bender family, I will say that I have lived here 40 years, and it is my opinion that they never got away. A vigilance committee was formed, and some of them are still here, but will not talk except to say that it would be useless to look for them and they smile at the reports of some of the family having been located. The family nearly got my father. He intended to stay there one night, but he became suspicious, and although they tried to coax him to stay, he hitched up his team and left. Regretting that I cannot give you more information, I am yours respectfully. D.M. Van Cleve, Chief of Police. Several times, suspected members of the Bender family were arrested in other parts of the country and brought back to Kansas to be tried. Most notably, in 1890, two women were arrested in Michigan and alleged to be Ma Bender and Kate. Their attorney had affidavits proving they were Mrs. Almira Griffith 
and Mrs. Sarah E. Davis, and were in Michigan between 1870 and 1874. After a habeas corpus hearing, they were released from the Labette County Jail. The true fate of the Benders remains a mystery to this day. Over the years, people claimed that Benders had been lynched and their bodies had been weighted and tossed into the Verdigris River. Nowadays, travelers who stop at a rest area at the junction of U.S. 400 and U.S. 169, just north of Cherryville, can read a historical marker about the Benders' crime. All that remains of this horrific tragedy are three hammers at different museums in Kansas. And while not on exhibit, if you're at the State Museum in Topeka, you can put in a request and see the only surviving knife from the Bender household. The knife that was believed to have slit the throats of their many guests. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Derek Izzy Show. I'd like to give a special thank you to Nature Box, Izzy Racquetball, our friends over at the website Murder by Gaslight, and thank all of you for downloading and listening to the podcast. Tell your friends, have them tell their friends, call the podcast hotline, leave a voicemail. If you're lucky, we will play it on the show. That podcast hotline is 307-257-2099. I'm Derek Izzy. Good day. Thank mm-hmm. you.